Art thou in the darkness? Mind it not, for if thou dost, it will feed thee more. But stand still and act not and wait in patience till light arises out of darkness and leads thee. We are continuing with our reading of the gospel according to Mark. We left off at the beginning of chapter six. I should first ask if there are any comments or thoughts or whatever on the past chapter that we've read. None from me. I uh, really got a lot out of it and it reminded me of a trip to Loma Linda Medical School where this statue entitled Who Touched Me was there at the medical school and had a friend go in for an operation two days ago and I have a son whose application to that medical school is pending. And so it was great to have this wonderful Bible study and focus on this part of the Bible all at the same time where I saw this statue which became very meaningful. And Loma Linda is one of five blue zones on planet Earth, meaning people live longer in this area than in uh, any other place on Earth. And there's some fascinating reasons for it. So that was uh, something that I have really enjoyed about what we're doing here is how it relates to my life. I was just recently rereading something in Isaac Pennington's works, some excerpts. He reminded me of something here. You know, when we were talking about the parable of the sower in chapter four, depending on your gospel, the seed, the sperma in Greek is called just the word or the utterance uh, in Mark. And it's called the word of God in Luke, God's utterance to us. And in Matthew, it's called the word of the kingdom, the utterance of the kingdom. Of course, so often we think of the word of God also referring to Christ, Christ within. But at the same time, uh, looking at that same word, that utterance, that expression of God is also the kingdom of God. It depends on how we're perceiving it or how we are experiencing it at the moment, whether we see it as the living Christ within, or if we see it as that kingdom of God, that domain of God, that, that divine state that we are getting some glimpses of, some, some intimations of within us. And so it can be looked at in various ways as to maybe inanimate, animate, because we are talking about a living God here and how he expresses our, himself to us may vary at times or depending on the person as well. So I just wanted to uh, mention that as to that seed, that semen that God has planted in us, and we being the soil, hopefully the good soil. Okay, good. And what, what about Isaac Pennington? Oh, I, I had just reread some excerpts of him that I had in a little book I had bought, oh, many years ago excerpts from some of his works, and he was referring to the seed as the, uh, the kingdom, that divine kingdom within us. 
of course, he's referring to the same thing here. Recall that that's also true where um, William Penn talks about it in the same way in, his, in one of his books, uh, Primitive Christianity Revived in the Faith and Practice of the People Called Quakers. He too mentions that divine word, divine logos within us as uh, also could be seen as this, the kingdom of God, as well as the grace of God, the word of God, the other various aspects as to how we may view it at different times or being different people looking at it more in one way than another. Okay. I'm reading Pennington at the moment too, and he also talks about how the seed can be veiled by like a husk or uh, a covering, and also how that there can be other seeds which, which aren't the true seed, which also have different sort of husks, and that sort of makes one look inside more to see what other things are, are going on, rather than as a distraction from the actual utterance of God that you're hoping for. Yeah. All right. I think I left off at the very beginning of chapter six. Is that correct? Yes. Did I read through the first six verses? Well, it wouldn't hurt to just read them again. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to him, Prophets are not without honor except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. I should mention one thing here in uh, verse 3. It says, the son of Mary. I have a footnote that says, other ancient authorities read, son of the carpenter and of Mary. And I believe in Matthew, it just says, son of Joseph. So we get variations here. If it's just son of Mary, that might be an indication that Joseph had already passed away, but it's not clear. Uh, I don't know if there's anything else in this passage we just read that might be uh, commented on. So why, why would um, people who knew him well not believe him, be less likely to believe him? I mean, we sort of take it for granted that people who know us will, will think that we're idiots, but why? <laughs> if, especially if it's Christ. <laughs> Well, I mean, you could say he just had a quiet childhood. Or according to some result, some reports of mischievous childhood. But if somebody you knew all of a sudden said he was divine, would you believe it? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and you have to remember uh, that, you know, the baptism of Jesus is mentioned in three of the four Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels. And you do have the 40 days in the desert, the wilderness, whether that was literally being out there in the desert or an interior, in, inward kind of mental, psychological wilderness as he was sorting out what had just happened to him when the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, again, the dove is a Jewish representative of not peace as we think of it, but as love. God is love. 
again, we have that number 40. And 40, so often in the Old and New Testament, both refers to a major transition from one state to another. There was a major change. And so, you know, that's something to uh, really be, be aware of. So, any other questions before I go on? Go ahead. <clears throat> then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. In verse 12 here it says, they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. I think this is one of those words that I can just keep on talking about forever. The Greek form of that word in the noun, and that's the word that gets translated most often as repentance. And as I've said in the past, <clears throat> this is not really a good translation for this word. The root of this word, the N-O, is the Greek root that means a mindset, a frame of mind, how you perceive everything. And the prefix meta means a change, like metamorphosis. A morph is a shape. A metamorphosis is a change in shape. Metanoia is a change, a transformation in one's mind, in one's how one perceives things, how one acts, how one thinks, what one does. This is what all the apostles, the disciples, all the missionaries understood when they went out. They were asking people to repent. If you read George Fox's journal, you'll see too that they went out in twos, carrying their Bibles, telling people to repent. And Quakers broke this into three parts. One was convincement. And convince is the older English word that means to convict. The convince or to convict meant that you were convicted. You were becoming aware of the fact that you have sinned that there isn't everything right with you as you may think there should be, that there's really a radical change needed in you. It's becoming aware of all your failings, of all the things that aren't quite right with you. And that was the first part of repentance, is this conviction or convincement. The second part was conversion. And that was the second part of this repentance. Convert Basically, the root of this word in Latin, the V-E-R there, or V-E-R-S, is the root that means to turn. And this turning, or this conversion, was a turning to God away from one's materialistic, worldly inclinations. And so this was a conversion, a turning to God. And finally, the last part was an amendment of life. You'll find this explained better in William Penn's introduction, I believe, to George Fox's journal. This is sort of the three major components of this tanoia, as it's said in Greek, metanoia, or metanoia, as we say it in English. So you have this 
convincement or conviction of being convicted by the light of Christ within you. That illumination shows you all the dark spots of you that you have not looked at before or do not want to look at. So that is the uh, conviction. And then converting, turning one's mind to God. And finally, amending or changing all those parts of you that need to be changed. Again, with, and in conjunction with the light of Christ, that illumination of the anointed one, Jesus, within you. So throughout the New Testament, if you look at other references in the book of Acts or whatever, it says again, all the disciples, the, the apostles went out and told people to repent. So I can't emphasize this enough because it's so unfortunate that it's been, it was mistranslated into Latin as penitentia, which gives us a repentance. And that was not a bad, that was a bad translation. And it was even known to be bad by someone like Tertullian in the uh, third century, one of the first major Christian writers in Latin. He did not like this translation. He thought it was wrong. And of course, it, we now know that it is not the right translation. It's much more than just feeling remorse or sadness over things we've done. It's way more than that. Comments? This is like the essence of Christianity. This is the very first step. I mean, it's unfortunate that it's not emphasized as much anywhere as much as it really should be. People, when they become Christians, if they're whatever they may have been before, pagan or atheists, agnostics, or whatever, they often do make changes in their lives, but you're asking for a real full change here, not just something. And of course, this isn't something that happens in a day. Uh, one did not become a Christian suddenly, you know, overnight. There was a whole period of being what was called a catechumen, uh, someone who was studying to become and understand all the things necessary to become a, a true Christian. And this was emphasized in the background of, of a lot of these Quaker works, either assumed there, you know, you, you miss this because you don't see it when you hear about convincement. Eight or nine out of ten times meant to convict. Actually, I can even say something further here to have you understand this. Okay, this, this is a Latin word, convinco. Yeah, that means the verb convince, and the participle is convictus. You can see it's the same root. Okay, I'm, I'm actually not really clear on, okay, you have convince written down, and is that the modern word? And then No, we're okay, talking, so about, we're talking about English of three, four hundred years ago, you so, know, like, like the King James Version or the Dewey Rames Catholic Version. That's what it meant, convince meant convict almost oh. all the time, 90% okay. of the time. Still You'll see people misunderstand that today if you find liberal friends, they're misunderstanding what was said there. I still don't quite understand though. Okay, so convince, by that you mean, that, that would be the early modern word, convince or convincement. No, the, no. You're no. referring to things that William Penn and George Fox and stuff wrote back then. They right. Used the word but that was, that was early modern English, right? Let me, let me say this. If someone like George Fox used the word convince, we would translate that word convince into modern English as convict. Okay. That's what I'm trying to get at. So the Quaker yes. word is convince or convincement. 
that's the original, those are original words used by Quakers three, 400 years ago. And at that time, the primary meaning of it was convict or convictedness, I guess. But what do we mean by convict? That's that now that I, now I'm. Okay, found guilty of being something you shouldn't be, a sinner. All right, that's what it referred to, you know, and that's where you become aware, perhaps, if you're not already aware of your sinful nature, of, of what's wrong, you know, your failings, your mis, all the parts of you that are not in alignment with God. Okay, so we would, re first time reader or 20th time reader would read convincement and would think that that would meant that the person had been convinced of something, that they had been, that their view had been changed, or they had been brought to believe something. It's just, it's just like the metanoia, you know, that uh, repentance in the modern sense is, of course, part of what that major transformation is there. But, you know, by being convicted, you're also kind of convinced, oh, uh, God has convinced me that I used to think I was an angel, but I'm really seeing I was hardly an angel, even though in my own eyes I was. So when we read early friend saying that they have been convinced, we are to think that they both have changed their state of mind and that they have been convinced of something in the way that we think of it, and also that they had converted, and also that they had felt convicted as in feeling guilty. It, the conviction is the more important thing, not the con being convinced in the modern sense was sort of secondary, okay? Although you will see other people today miss that so often. I think it, it's something that when you've experienced it yourself, you understand. When, when the light of Christ shows you what you really are like inside, you're convicted. You're, you stand guilty. It's, it's, not a, it's not just an intellectual realization. It's, it's a stark fact. The primary, the number one, the foremost function of the light of Christ within each of us, in all of us, is to show us all the dark sides of ourselves, the, the shadows, the, the parts that we may not even be aware of because we hold ourselves in such high esteem. But on the other hand, it's like the first step it may be a major, very major step in many people, maybe not so much in some, who, who aren't in need so much of that kind of repentance. I mean, Jesus himself says that he came to change sinners, so that if, if a person is not so much of a sinner as others, then that obviously is, doesn't hold here in the same way. That's why we call it the light of the living Christ is this living illumination, illuminator within us, and this is the first step. Of course, what's important is if you stick to following that illumination within you, it will lead you out of that kind of maybe even despairing feeling you might get, realizing you're just not who you really think you are or want to be, but it will then lead you to a, a greater step. The grace that's given you, will, you'll be given more grace if you act with that first grace, you know, grace upon grace. God's giving you one little help, and then he gives you another little kindness to help you along. Well, it seems that one thing that makes this harder for many people is reasonably that people think that they already spend a whole bunch of time on their own 
thinking about what they might be doing wrong and how they might be failing and how they might be not being a good enough person. So they, they already feel as if they've, they're already spending massive amounts of time doing that. And they, it doesn't seem that there would be some entirely different way that one could have that experience through Christ. So it doesn't register. Well, let's put it this way. Quakers have understood this to be true of everyone at all times, even before the birth of Jesus. So that maybe you can't give a name to this part of your conscience that is above your conscience, that somehow is telling you, everybody in my society thinks that it's, it's great to go out and kill people in wars, but somehow I don't feel that way. Well, that is the light of Christ within that person saying that to him. If he feels that this is really the right way, even though my Nazi society tells me I should be going out and killing Jews or something, I don't feel that. I think this is true in small ways and big ways. I think so many of us kind of have this chip on our shoulders thinking we are, you know, God's gift to mankind at times when we really aren't. There's a need for a deep humility here to put ourselves where we are in relationship to God, because we're just creatures here for a few decades, if we're lucky. Humanity goes on, the planet goes on, the universe goes on. But if we want to be Christ-like, it really is a goal to be Christ-like. That's what a true Christian is. He's trying to be like Christ Jesus. What we know of his life, how he lived, what he said, how he acted. I think what's important, as you as you said, Henry, is just because a person doesn't acknowledge Jesus, the anointed one for who he is, doesn't mean that Jesus, who he is, is not within that person working. In revealing things. Paul was knocked down and a voice was talking to him. He heard the voice of Christ before he knew what it was. So in the same way, these people you're talking about, who, who as Henry was saying, feel a sense that there's, you know, there are things wrong with them that need to be cleaned up. That, that is the light of Christ, whether or not they recognize it or acknowledge it as such. What about if it doesn't come along with any sort of humility? then it hasn't made that step yet. Yeah, I would question it then. I, I mean, that's, it might be in yeah, the right direction, but more needs to be done. Yeah, when, it, when you get knocked down on your knees, just so aware of how messed up you are in, in front of this perfect being, yeah, that's when the humility comes. No, so I'm, I'm asking because I'm not trying to say anything insulting about the people they spend a lot of time thinking, a number of them thinking about, you know, their own failings, but there's not a sense of being knocked down and not a sense of it being due to God and not a sense of it being a, a reason for humility before God. So well, but from, what, from what Henry is saying, it sounds like that's already most of the way if you already can see your own flaws. But from what I'm hearing it though, it sounds as if this experience is different in kind from just knowing what your own flaws are. Well, let me refer thee to um, the story that Jesus gave about the rich man and the poor man that both went to pray. Mm -hmm. And the rich man saying how great he was. He was giving you know, alms to the poor and all this and that. 
he's, he's saying all the nice things he does, but he's still got an ego as big as anything you could meet with. Whereas the poor guy was just saying, you know, forgive me, Lord, I'm a sinner. And he realizes that he's struggling. And I think God is much more understanding of that poor guy than he is of the rich man. And we have the error of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, at first, relied totally on God to tell them what was good and what was not good. And then they decided they would do it for themselves. And, and I think, to some extent, the people that you're describing might be making that same error of trying to decide for themselves what's good or bad, even within themselves, using their own logic and their own ethics and so on, rather than giving everything up to God, putting it all on the table and say, okay, God, you pick out what to keep and what to throw away. I mean, I, I, I worry more about my own ego than any other, any other person's at the moment, because that's what I'm always dealing with 24 hours a day. I wasn't referring to them because I'm criticizing them. I'm referring to them as an example. I mean, I don't think that I'm all that different from them, but it's easier than just saying, you know, describing my own issues. So I can think of someone who, not me, I think she's really aware of her problems more than most people. She doesn't, I don't think that she believes in God or Christ, but she is very aware. And I think that, you know, most of her choices are, you know, very ethical choices. So there is the idea that people, no matter what their nationality or background or whatever, have the light of Christ in them. And so is she there? Is she mostly there? I would say she's on the way then. But there's convincement first, right? Yeah, yeah. And then conviction and conversion. Ethics, ethics, allows, ethics involves a choice between two goods or two evils, whereas morality is a choice between good and evil. And I think that a lot of times, especially in our relativist culture, we get involved in these ethical questions and think that we're making moral questions and try to pat ourselves on the back. But we're not. When it comes to moral questions, we have to turn to God and let him give the answer. His spirit melts that part in us that rejects him. If we wait on him, if we seek him with all our hearts. So that's what we're not doing so often when we let self get in the way. Self is always the problem. Whether we recognize it even as a problem, it is the problem. You know, humility, I just wrote down on the whiteboard here, humble, comes from a Latin word, humus, H-U-M-U-S, which means earth. Humble is being down on the level of the earth. It's not putting oneself up high on a pedestal you know, to be praised by other people. And it's humility is really an important Christian virtue that should be worked on, uh, needs to be worked on. You know, it it really is in conflict with our society, American values in terms of getting on in the world, you know, rising up to various levels of whatever in work and other, other areas that we're involved in. This simple, quiet humility is just not something that's looked at favorably by most people, unfortunately. I can't recall who it was now. Was it Sarah Grubb was saying something about Joseph John Gurney in the 19th century 
and this was a criticism of that he looked very much like a uh, Quaker. He wore all his usual gray, black clothing and hat and whatnot, but it was like the finest silk, the finest material, so that he's following the rules and outward rules and regulations of clothing, but his heart was somewhere else. And it also seems that there are absolutely people who can be completely aware of their own flaws, but not feel humility because they don't believe in God. Yeah. Yeah. There's a blindness there. Even being aware of one's faults, when you have people who are, have very low self-esteem, but they are so egotistical in that low self-esteem. This is a kind of ironic, I think, but I understand that because I think I've seen it. Not that you may have high self-esteem, you could have very low self-esteem, and it's the attitude, that psychological attitude that is clearly not a God-given, a God-centered kind of attitude, so that one could be very arrogant, but feel like he's a worm or she's a worm. And, and that, I think, is very true at times. Okay? I don't know if I've convinced <laughs> the Karen, but <laughs> in the modern sense. <laughs> I'm, I'm, still, I'm still trying to... You, you, you had said that if a person, say, were in Nazi Germany, and they, didn't, they understood that it was wrong to kill Jews, that they would be much of the way there. And, of course, that's the right moral position, obviously, but then there's just something else. From what you're saying, it sounds as if they don't have to be aware of the existence of God or believe in God. Well, think in the 19th century America. I mean, I can remember, and you have, you've, I remember reading this, the only good engine is a dead engine. I, there's something missing there in terms of having a conscience and a consciousness that is focused on God. It's clearly not God-given. Uh, the way of Christ is the way of the cross. Yes. And many people, even if they don't consciously realize it, subconsciously understand that and try as hard as they can to avoid that way. But the cross is giving up ourselves. As Henry said, self is the problem. It's not a big self or small self. It's the existence of self as something separate from God. That's what we need to give up. And that's a scary thing to do until you try it. Paul says in one of his epistles, I no longer live. I am no longer alive. And the word for I is ego, E-G-O. And he, he emphasizes that. He's using the word, I am no longer alive, but Christ is alive in me. That's who's controlling his words and his actions. He's given up to that direction from that anointing within him. If we want to have that anointing control ourselves to keep us where we should be as understanding we are temporal creatures, we, we live in time and space for just whatever amount of time we are given and that we are not here for ourselves. We are given this life to enjoy, but it is to really look at it in terms of getting to the goal, which is to be in union with God eventually. Maybe we better move on a little bit, Henry. Okay. <laughs>
I think we'll, we'll get back to this topic of repentance because it is so essential. All right, let's, let's do one more here, one more section. <clears throat> uh, this is a very long section, and it's almost time to finish. I'm wondering if well, I can just read the first four, uh, through 16. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. I think we'll start here next week where it talks about the heading of John the Baptist. Okay, any other comments, questions? So next week, there's some very interesting things to say about the feeding of the 5,000 here, which is one of the sacred stories that occurs in all four of the Gospels. I think it may be the only one, if I'm not mistaken. That's an interesting fact. Thank you, Henry. Art thou in the darkness, minded not, for if thou dost, it will feed thee more. But stand still, and act not, and wait in patience, till light arises out of darkness and leads thee. This has been a podcast of Ohio Yearly Meeting of the Religious Society of Friends. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Chip Thomas. Our music was from Paulette Myers CDs, which are Timeless Quaker Wisdom in Plainsong and Wellsprings of Life Quaker Wisdom in Chant. These CDs are available at paulantmeyer.com.